This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. Jen from Ocala, Florida. And I am Tara Tibbetts from Fort Worth, Texas. And you are listening to the monthly fox hunting episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network. We are coming to you December 16th, 2021, episode 2831. Good morning, Horse World. We are the fox hunting episode. We come to you the third Thursday of every month. So put that on your calendar to catch up on all the fun and exciting fox hunting tidbits. Da, 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 tidbits from Tara Tibbets. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't help. I'm sorry. I couldn't. I love myself a little alliteration. The other way that you can find... I had a, a brain-free moment there. Uh, another way you can get all of the fox hunting episodes especially if you're a newcomer to the show and you go, oh my God, there's lots of them and I don't have them. If you go to horsesinthemorning.com, just look for the fox hunting cover art. There's a little square right about the middle of the page. It says fox hunting. And if you click on that, all of the fox hunting episodes pop right up. Yes. And there has been a lot of hubbub lately for, and now that I'm saying it, I'm going to space on the name of the author and the book that we had on a year ago it was a, a children's book that was about a horse a pony i think that became a fox hunter yes beaufort beaufort, beaufort. The, yes i saw yes. beaufort came across my facebook feed today yeah yes yes so if you are interested it's a children's book um and if you're looking for a gift for a child who is interested in fox hunting or you want to share that just google if believe it's beaufort the painted pony does that sound right sounds about right yeah Beaufort Fox Hunting Book, something of that effect should do the yes. trick. <laughs> and it is a delightful story that is based on a real horse. Um, and it was a delightful chat with the author. But yeah. Beaufort the Painted, I'm Googling, Pony. There it is. But I, by Candace yeah. Miller. Yes. Dun, yes. Dun, so dun. I was, I've, I've, somebody had posted about that and someone else had said, yeah, it had mentioned the podcast episode about it, which was delightful. And, so I was kind of digging through the archives, and it's always fun to go look at the past episodes and the things we've chatted about. Yay! So that was uh, that's that's fun. Whenever you see something like that pop up again, yay! Somebody's listening. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's kind of one of the fun things about fox hunting is that styles change a little bit. Like some things change a little bit, but it's so rooted in tradition that you know things about fox hunting from twenty years ago are not that outdated now. True. Very true. Oh, I have a good one. We're going to catch up on on this past month's adventures in a moment. But again, something that came across my Facebook page. Yes. A riding clothing manufacturer, one of the small antique ones, posted about their new rust-colored breeches that they're coming out with. And they were asking people about whether or not they liked the rust color. Because it was a very muted rust. It was a very muted. it It was what I called the... Washed them and left them hanging on the line in the sunshine for a week, rust. 
Yeah. It was a really, really, it looked like faded out rust like it would be. And it was interesting because the conversation just went bonkers. People are passionate about rust-colored breaches. Yes, yes. either for or against. Yes. <laughs> I was amazed. Well, I, I'm, it's, it's, that is one thing I am endlessly entertained. There was another post, I think, in that same group a couple of weeks ago. Somebody was like, why isn't there a book about what you can and can't wear or have or whatever in the hunt field? And, <laughs> and the answer to that question, if anyone's curious, is because there is no finite, this is what you can and cannot wear in the hunt field, because it varies by hunt. It varies by continent. It varies by climate. It very it's yeah. it, it really the masters of every hunt can make their own rules more or less. Yeah. And that's and that's very interesting because when I growing up, when I was first introduced to fox hunting via United States Pony Clubs, I was in the Mid Atlantic region. And that part of the United States is very uber traditional. Like nothing's changed since eighteen twenty two in fox hunting in that part of the country. So we did actually have a book about what you could and couldn't wear and do and not do and say and not say and things like that. Because that small regional area, it was very regimented. Right. But like you said, when you look at the fox hunting community beyond your local or regional hunts, it is a free-for-all. And it was interesting. I was just over on the Masters of Foxhounds Association website, which is beautiful, by the way. Yes. And one of the pictures on the slideshow on the homepage is a shot of what is obviously the staff of a hunt in the upper Midwest, judging by the ginormous mountain range in the background of the picture. And one of the people in that picture was in traditional um, Western garb. She w- it was yep. it, it was gorgeous. Yep. Yeah, so I thought, oh, that's really cool that it, it's, it's gotten to the point now where even the MFHA, which is the, I don't want to say governing body of fox hunting because it's really not that, but that's that's the fox hunting be all to end all in right. the United States. If you need to find out something about fox hunting, that's the people with the answers. They are now saying, you know, we're okay with that. We were uncomfortable with it for a few generations. The idea that somebody in vaquero dress might show up at a fox hunt. But we're cool with it now. <laughs> yep. And, and a lot of hunts, you you talk to the huntsmen or the MF, the masters, they will say, you know, you get it, you know, someone will come out fox hunting and try it and they'll ride Western. And usually if people really take to it and they really want to do it over time, they'll usually transition to more traditional English tack and whatnot, just because it is, it does serve a purpose for comfort and ease to do the, some of the things, but yes. There's plenty of hunts that have a fourth field that really just walks and trots a little bit, and you're perfectly fine to be riding Western. Because when you're in that fourth field, uh, field being, if you're not a regular listener of the fox hunting episode, the people who come out to watch the hounds work and watch the staff help the hounds work is call, are called the field. And they're divided into tiers, so to speak. First tier or first flight or first field being the people who go um, hellbent for election all out. And with then, the huntsmen. With the huntsmen. They're, they're all out. You jump all the jumps, run real fast. And then second tier might take some arounds of the bigger jumps. And then third tier probably won't jump anything, but they're going to keep right up. So you go down the line and it, it makes sense that you are when you're in that fourth field where you're really just walking and trotting, you are genuinely following the hounds yeah 
Because you're just there, you yes. you see them in the distance, you watch the, and you're far enough away, depending upon the countryside, you would have a really good view of how the hounds work if you're in some open country. Well, and a lot of hunts will call a group like that a hilltopper group, which sometimes the hilltoppers do gallop, sometimes they don't. But oftentimes the hilltoppers, if they're legit on top of hills or mountains in some cases, they absolutely have the best views. Yeah, it's it's well worth looking into if you would like to experience following the hounds but aren't too sure you want to do the run fast jump high fall hard thing um, contact some of your local hunts contact the mfha to get contact numbers and names and see if they have that hilltopper field where you can go out in your spotlessly clean well-fitted tack of choice and follow along and watch the hounds because watching the hounds from afar like that because i've ridden in the front and I've ridden in the back, it's a very different experience. The When you're riding in the front, it's it's an adrenaline rush for four and a half hours straight. You're just, you're pretty much knackered at the end of the day. Right. Whereas following the hounds from a distance like that, it's exciting and interesting, but it's a very different experience. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty cool. I would agree. Yeah. Pretty cool. Now, this is what the point in the show where each month we catch up on Tara Tibbetts' latest adventures, because as a fox hunter, she has adventures. So what have you been up to? Just uh, lots of hunting. Um, we're back to, to whipping in with this fledgling hunt over here in Texas. And um, we had an, what is this? We're recording on Wednesday. Yep. We hunted on Saturday and we, we are fortunate. I think I've talked about it before. We're fortunate that we have this really nice fixture that is a few thousand acres and we've kind of we've been out going out there for a couple of few months now and we're really kind of getting a handle on there's a tremendous amount of coyotes out there. I think I told the story last time about the world's fattest coyote <laughs> or that it was 2 months ago, which we haven't seen that coyote again, but they're all healthy. It's been great sport and we've kind of figured out there's one corner that the hounds almost always get on scent. And usually it's, it's, there's a coyote there and they get on a good run and then they get to the corner of this pasture that we, we have, um, the landowner has said we can come over there, but at this point we have no way of getting there. We need to go put in a jump or something. And so I'm a whipper in. And so I kind of hang out in that corner because unfortunately if the coyote or the quarry goes in that corner, we have to stop the hounds. And the quarry knows that. They do. And he totally gave us the bird this weekend. (laughs) And I was kind of in my corner because of that particular, like the need to stop the hounds at that spot. I don't stay with the huntsman. I kind of go out and hang out in that corner because if they get on a hot run, the territory is a little, you know, there's, there's some sneaky drops and, and it's just not the best place to go full gallop um, until we get to know it better. So I hang out there and sure enough, the hounds got on a hot line. Immediately a coyote pops up and he's, yeah, it's always interesting to watch them because they kind of go as fast as they have to go to keep sport, but at the same time, they're they're kind of messing with the hounds. <laughs> and he totally, a couple of times, like before they really got close, he'd just kind of stop and look at them and didn't look concerned at all. And then they got close and he's like, all right, this is for real. And so the coyote took off and I took off and knowing I was going to, so I got a pretty good gallop in. And so Simon and I went down and we got to the fence line and we watched the coyote go trotting along his way. And we had to work really hard to stop the hounds. And thankfully they're well-trained and we've got commands that we tell them to leave it. And they, you know, it, it's hard as a whipper in and a huntsman to, to stop the hounds, but 
they understand there's a barrier right there. Mm-hmm. Holy smokes, I am so sore. <laughs> From that 15 minutes of galloping and stopping the hounds and then like decompressing for a minute. And I think part of it is just like your body gets so tense with adrenaline. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's pretty that. intense. Exactly. Yes. Because yes. there's a lot at stake. You need to get the hounds to stop because um, first and foremost, you need to keep the hounds in what I might call legal territory. Right. 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 And if you're, if you're hunting in an area where, it's densely populated or there are a lot of busy roads. It gets pretty intense when you it's time to stop the hounds and hello, they want to follow the scent. That's what they want to do. Exactly. Exactly. And and we try really hard to, every huntsman does, they work really hard to, to not put the hounds in a situation where they do have to call them off the quarry, but um, it worked out. The hounds were fantastic. We got them turned around and we hunted back towards the trailers where the trailers were parked and again, got on another scent in a different um, cover of trees and saw another coyote, kind of the same story, but um, it was a little easier to get them turned around that time. So we were out for a good, I think like three hours. Wow. So it's been, it's been really fun. It's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's interesting. Now this time of year does do your local hunts, because you have several that you attend on a reasonably regular basis. Do they take a break during the holiday season and then pick up again later in January? How, how does their schedule usually work? No, I mean, it's the, the hunts that I've hunted with and I'm the most familiar with in this area. The only challenge really in December is not so much climate is just like the number of people, you know, if the if it's a huntsman and there's enough whips to go out, you don't really need the field to go. So if they have a huntsman and whips, and a lot of times those are the best hunts. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been able to go out. Um, our huntsman's going out every Wednesday and Saturday, and we've had enough people to con- you know to keep going, and and it's not been an issue. And I don't think the other couple of hunts in DFW have had any trouble really either. Um, and it's been in the freaking eighties on oh, Saturday. So you're having a mild, like, mild yeah, winter. like it's yeah. it was eighty today. It's last weekend. It was eighty in the during the week, and then it was forty nine or forty five when we went out hunting on Saturday morning. So it was kind of one of those like it was hot during the week, and then there was a huge cold front came in, and that's basically what's going to happen again this week. So if you want to go out and try fox hunting in December, call Tara. Yes, <laughs> because that's way more fun than the typical. November, December, especially December weather that you get in the mid-Atlantic. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of even, I mean, like I know Nebraska, North Hills, they were hunting in their Burwell territory last weekend, and it was pretty treacherous driving in the snow. The hunting was beautiful in the snow, but it was it was cold. It's getting to the hunt that's dicey. Yep. Yeah. And we're, we're very fortunate that we usually only have that kind of dicey weather in January and maybe in February. Last year, obviously, we had the snowpocalypse in February. Yeah. There we go. Well, good to catch up on the latest going on in Tara's life. And it is now time for our term of the month. There are lots and lots of words in the fox hunting universe that if you have no experience with fox hunting, you go, what? So Tara is here to help us uh, clear things up. So what's our word today? Well, our term of the month is inspired because I think this is hopefully going to go away soon, but a lot of hunts and areas in the United States are really dry right now. So scenting 
for the hounds is always best when the air is humid and it's around 35-ish degrees. That's kind of the ideal situation. So on days where you go out and it's 65 and sunny and windy, oftentimes you have what's called a blank day. And a blank day or a blank is when there's just that the hounds can't get on scent to save their lives. There's just nothing there. Yep. You might hear a huntsman say it's a blank cover. So this, you know, they, they take the hounds to a cover, which is usually just kind of a, a wooded or, or bushy area, which is usually where the quarry is hiding. And they'll say that's a blank cover because there's no scent in there. There's no quarry in there. Some days you might have a blank day where the hounds, they hunt and they've, they've got their noses to the ground and they just, for whatever reason, they never find it. Hmm, you never as a huntsman want a blank day, but you, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. And that could be a very long day. Yes. And, you know, because you just walk from play, walk or trot from cover to cover <laughs> to cover. Yep. And if it's freaking freezing cold, that's the worst. Yes. You know, I, I distinctly remember a few times going out where it was cold and miserable and sleeting and getting a blank day. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. You are Because just... it's the run that warms everybody up. It's the run that warms <laughs> everybody up. Now, I have, a, I have an important question. Yeah. If you have a drag hunt, you can't have a blank day. Right. Or can you? I mean, the, the, you can have, and I, uh, full disclosure, I've not done a lot of drag hunting. Um, but my understanding is it's, it's not unlike, you know, right finger quotes, normal scent or re- live scent in that if the conditions are poor, sunny is especially like if, if you lay a, a drag, a scent drag, and it's super sunny, the sun burns off the scent. Mm-hmm. So unless you've got a super wooded area where you can go, um, the they can get burned off in the sun. And if it's windy, that's another way that can e- they either can't find it or it blows it away. Yeah, I was gonna say it just blows it the wrong direction. There, they think they're yeah. following it when in fact they're going downwind. I never thought of that, but you're right. If you've got really terrible conditions for scenting, you could with a drag hunt where they take something that has been saturated with the scent and you drag it about with usually a four wheeler and then the hounds come out and chase that scent. Uh, you could have a blank day now that you say that. Very interesting. Because, in, you know, depending on how, how far ahead of the hounds they, they lay the drag, if you've laid it an hour or something before the hounds are out, like the end of the scent could be dried up before you even get to yeah. it. Interesting. Huh. Pretty cool. So, Speaking of hounds, scents, fox hunting in general, what is going on over at the Masters of Foxhounds Association? Well, the newsletter just came out Yay. Uh, yesterday, I want to say. So if, if you want to get on the email list for the newsletter, you just join the MFHA. It's um, MFHA.com. It's a, like $35 a year, and you get the newsletter. You get, I want to say they print cover side, which is their beautiful magazine. Once, maybe twice a year, you get the hunt directory so you can find hunts in your area or if you're visiting someplace else and you want to see if you can borrow a horse and go ride it's it's all in there but in the newsletter uh they there was a we've been talking a lot in the past few episodes we had fred barry on who's the coordinator of the performance trials for foxhounds in the united oh, states yeah. yeah and they had one the first week in december so i want to say it was like the third and fourth of december at the Long Run Woodford Hounds, which is in Kentucky. And big winner there was a Shawnee Hound. The huntsman there is Callie Wallace-Smith. And Shawnee Dart was the champion hound there. And that was 
speaking of blank, that was kind of why I thought of that, that they went out the first morning and they had a blank morning and they had, you know, 24 couple, I want to say of hounds. So they had almost 50 hounds hunting together and just, it was super warm and they just could never get on scent. So they didn't go out for very long. They took the hounds back to the barn, had lunch, waited for conditions to improve and went out that afternoon and they were actually able to score the hounds. So cool. Yeah. And the next performance trial, if you're intrigued by this whole deal, is at Belmead Hunt in Thompson, Georgia, which is just a, about an hour east of Atlanta. Very welcoming, super fun. And that is January 21st and 22nd. And again, if you go to MFHA.com and kind of click around, you can find the performance hound performance trial schedule and you can click on if you want to go. And Bellmead is one of the most welcoming hunts I've ever been to. Up Wilson is their huntsman and one of the masters. And he is just Southern hospitality, like in a human being. So <laughs> I definitely encourage folks to try that out. Definitely. Um, and then a couple shopping opportunities that I wanted to mention on the MFHA's website. They have a new, um, you can buy br MFHA branded gear. They have a new logo, a super fun logo by their new communications group. But you can, they, it clicks over to a company called Land's End, which a lot of us who buy monogrammed work attire, you can buy all kinds of hats and jackets and vests and shirts and whatnot with the MFHA logo. And you can buy it right, it's, click onto it right there from the MFHA website. And lastly, every year the MFHA puts out a beautiful calendar with photographs from hunts across the United States. And you can go buy your 2022 calendar at the MFHA website. There we go. And it, and one of the things that I love, because I'm a little bit geeky that way, is they have all kinds of fascinating information about the history of fox hunting in the United States, how it got started, and the whole cult, how the culture developed. They have hunt indexes where you can find hunts around the country. They talk about hunt insurance. My goodness, if you're an insurance weenie, and yes, there are people who are insurance weenies, you can read about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all there. Cool. Yep. Well, I think it is time for us to give our guest, Eleanor Hartwell, a holler. Sounds good. I'm delighted today to be chatting with Eleanor Hartwell, huntsman at Bridal Spur Hunt outside of St. Louis, Missouri. And around the December time, I love to have guests on who, of course, are fox hunting, fox hunting affiliated, but also maybe do some type of creative endeavor. And so... I wanted to chat a little bit today with Eleanor, obviously about hunting at Bridal Spur and how that all came about, but also about some of her creative endeavors outside of hunting. So Eleanor, if you would start by telling us a little bit about kind of your background in fox hunting and what, what brought you to Bridal Spur. Well, all right then. Uh, no, my first meet was when I was seven at the Smithfield Church in, in at the Millbrook, New York. And I grew up there and whipped into my mom there and left there when I was about 30 and uh, sought a new job, but wound up in New Hampshire for five years where I proceeded to have my daughter Madeline. And my then husband Jay said to me one day, he's like, you're miserable. You need to go and find out what jobs there are. So I called the office and they told me about this one and I set it up and came out here to interview and never in a million years thinking I actually moved to Missouri, but I just thought it might be a nice little vacation. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I did in fact wind up moving out here in 2003. A little bit of a change of scenery. 
Uh, yes, yes, it's very <laughs> beautiful here in its own way. <laughs> it is. It is lovely. I've I've ridden around kind of sort of in that area, but did it take you a little while to adjust? Is the hunting remarkably different than what you were used to? Well, uh, if you're if it, when one grows up in Millbrook. One's expectations are pretty high because, you know, the country there is fabulous. And um, I kind of thought that everywhere was like that, but it's not. So yeah, there there are adjustments to be made, you know, especially when I first moved here. We Our kennels were down in New Mali, and the, the uh, development was closing in very fast. And we moved up here to Eolia an hour north in 2006. And here... There's there's lots of country. Um, it's very open, rural, um, but measures are going to start having to be taken to keep it that way. So, Eleanor, how did you get started making hunt whips, which, by the way, are functional works of art from my point of view? Were you one of those artsy people growing up, or did you discover your talents and your love of art as an adult? Basically, art was the only thing I got any kind of good grades at in school. and. I, I've always, yeah, a lot of watercolors, you know, any artist, you know, they're, everything changes over time. And it, right now it's evolved um, into making whips and sticks and things like that uh, um, and burning with the pyrography and also some other things that have sort of progressed over time. But yeah, I do also do watercolors and I'd like to get back into the oil paintings um unfortunately being a huntsman really it makes it hard to also be a serious artist and trying to be a serious artist makes it hard to be you know an everyday huntsman so it you know it, it, the two um uh need to be balanced out a little bit but uh, this is my 20th season here at Bridalspur, and i now have some very good reliable help so it's relieved me a little bit that some of the poop shoveling <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, um, so I have a little bit more time to concentrate on doing some of the artwork because I'm not getting any younger and one of these days I will have to retire and it would be nice to have something to fall back on for at least a little bit of spare change when I'm done <laughs> yes hopefully won't, hopefully won't be any time soon because Bridalsburg was established in 1927 so I think it's what five years will be their 100th anniversary. And should I make it another five seasons? Um, it will be my 25th season here. Oh, tremendous. That, that would be yeah. fun milestones to hit together. I and, yeah. and kind of want to go back a little bit more to the um, whip making. So you make, you make the whip handles out of wood, correct? Correct. Correct. And I've done that since I was a teenager when I think I was at uh, one of the Bassett trials at Oldie and I went to Middleburg and I thought I might purchase a, a, a crop. And when I saw this is, you know, obviously a long time ago in the eighties or whatever, I saw that it cost $50 and I thought that that was ridiculous that I could make my own. So I did. I've been doing it ever since. Do you uh, get the wood hard. mostly around St. Louis or do you get wood from all different places? I carry a saw everywhere I go. That's awesome. Yep. And if I see a stick that I like, I cut it and so, take it home. So that begs the question, when you're wandering about with your saw in your hand, what about a particular piece of tree makes you say, oh, that'll make a good one? And are there particular species that you like better than others? 
Well, <clears throat> maple is very beautiful, and find a nice straight one with a knot at the end is awesome. Ash is uh, plentiful and always perfect because they always have a good root ball. And I usually I use saplings rather than branches because they tend to be straight. They need to be reasonably straight. One of the things that people comment on about my handles is how well-balanced they are. Um, <laughs> I had one, a, a, a man come to me at the Bryn Mawr Hound Show a couple of years ago, and he purchased a, a crop from me, and he was overjoyed with it. He said, and he, he went away, and he came back to me three times that day and said how much he loved his new crop. He came back to me, or no, he called me on the phone a year later and said all the same things. How much he loved his crop, and thank you so much. <laughs> Did he buy five more? No, no, he didn't need five more. All he needed was just the one. <laughs> well, and kind of what going to, um, you know, usually when you're in the hunt field, you see uh, the crop is is kind of a, a leather-covered handle with the horn on the end. And yours are not that. They're they're solid wood. Um, Correct. And and do you, do you get comments or questions about the correctness of that in the hunt field, or is it just accepted? Never. I have, not, I, have, I have never been questioned about my choice of crop. I love that. Yep. And, and actually, I've started, you know, the reason I started uh, embellishing them, burning them with people's initials or whatever, was because uh, somebody had one of mine and it got stolen at the hound show. So I said, well, you want me to put some initials on it? <laughs> and uh, that's how that all started. And they really, I, I know lots of people who have them and they are absolutely beautiful. And I'm trying to drop hints to my husband that he needs to get me one. But one thing, and I know it's not your absolute favorite one to do, but I do, if, you, if you're if you a hunts person or you ride out, like Jen and I live in hot climates and it's buggy in the summertime, Eleanor makes beautiful fly whisks and you can send, if you have a special horse's tail, you could send to have made. And I've had a few friends who have done that and they're very, they're beautiful and very meaningful. Thank you. So yes. if you have a horse that hardly has any tail, but he's special anyway, can I just go out and buy a fake tail and send it over to Eleanor? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you can send me whatever tail you have from your horse. I have plenty of other hair with which to, you know, make a crop. Make oh, a so I can with. just sacrifice a few dozen hairs. There you yep. go. I like that. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, I also have... Horse hair in different colors. I have turquoise and pink, and I can get whatever color oh. you like if you. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. That'd be yeah, fun. There's all sorts of yeah. all sorts of fun things to do with it. So, oh, uh, take ahead. me through the process of making the crop part of the handle, which is the the stick shaped part. How's that process? You go out there in the woods. You go, oh, that's a beautiful piece of wood. You you <laughs> you collect it. What happens next? Take me through the process. Well, well okay. So I, I, get, I take my little saw and I go walk through the woods and say I'm just collecting ash because it's easy and I have a little grove up the hill. <clears throat> and, but you have to sort of dig out from around the root and then you have to saw through it and with a little hand saw and you have to go through the dirt and the rocks and, you know, that kind of dulls your saw pretty quick so after a while. Anyway, so that's kind of an effort right there. And then take it home, take the sticks home, stick them in the can, you know, I have to label them first, you know, what, what, you know 12 21 and put it in the can 
so that when you pull it out next time you're looking for a stick to use, you know how old it is. <laughs> because I like to leave them to sit at least six months. <clears throat> um, anyway, so then I have to strip it, you know, strip all the bark off it and sand it and sand it and sand it some more. And um, let's see. Then if there's any decorations required, I do that. And then I uh, put the top on, which requires, you know, shaping the top end and sanding it and gluing the top, the leather part on and then taking that down and sanding that smooth and then wrapping it with the string with all kinds of glue and then uh, three or four coats of tongue oil varnish. Oh, so they're, so they're treated with tongue oils. We're curious what you finish them with because they're all shiny and beautiful. Yes. <laughs> well, the tongue oil really brings out everything, yeah. all the grain, all the pretty, all the pretty. Yeah. How, how flexible is that little piece of wood once it's uh, the finished product? Is it flexible like a traditional um, show crop somebody would use in a, in a riding arena or is it really, really stiff like a more traditional hunt whip? Oh no, there's, there's, there's stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They, they, no, no flex. <laughs> <laughs> no flex. No flex. No flex. No, no. And then I also make, yeah, I don't know if anybody would remember the old green Italian poppers from many years ago. And I think the guy died who made them and they haven't been seen since and you can't get a decent popper. So I, many years ago, recreated <clears throat> those poppers and they're not something I love to do either because they are very time consuming and a pain, but they work and people like them a lot. So, so explain to everybody who's not well versed what a pop, what the popper is. Okay. So the, a, a hunt whip consists of the crop, which is the wooden part that you hold in your hand, the thong, which is the leather part that makes the bang. But at the end of the thong, there is the popper, or I guess some people might call it a lash, um, and that's what makes it, that's what makes the noise. And, you know, without a good one, you're with this sort of goes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all about the noise. That's what makes them effective tools. Right. Correct. It's important to point out the the whips really aren't for hitting. They're for the popping noise is to get the hound's attention. Kind of like a horn. Correct. 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 Get their heads up if they're doing the wrong thing to, yeah. Know, so, yep. Um, it's important to have the right tools, and uh, and I've actually just gotten some different uh, thicknesses of the inside core twine, so I'm going to make some actually bigger ones, bigger and thicker ones, because some of those guys carry some big, big whips. Uh, yes. I, I was sent some to repair last summer, last spring, I guess, and <clears throat> I got them in the mail, and they were about two and a half feet long and weighed about four pounds each. <laughs> they, oh, gosh. They, were, they were huge. <laughs> so, and each one, they were made of oak with a staghorn handle and had a steel rod down the middle of them. I've never seen anything like it. Gosh, your arm would get tired carrying that thing. Yeah, you, you would think so. But, you know, a, a, a crop like that needs, you know, a big heavy popper to right. go with it. You know, it all, it's all about the balance. And I make, I make crops, everything from toddler-sized on up. So cool. So if listeners are intrigued and they want to order a whip or see your art, where would they find it? 
Well, I have a website, and it's E-P-H-WHIPS, W-H-I-P-S. Awesome, it's not com. very well. Or, it, it, oh, sorry, it's not, yes, dot .com. And it's not very well organized, I'm afraid. I'm not very well versed in how to do it, and I just sort of threw it together a while ago, and it needs some editing. But there is a little, a pretty good smattering of what I do do um, on there. Yeah, and, there's some uh, photos, and at least they can get in touch with you there. Yes. Awesome. And and you are you active on Facebook? I know we have a lot of listeners yes. there. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Facebook and uh, at Instagram, also at EPH Whips. Perfect. And we will put links to all of that in the show notes. Oh, awesome. <laughs> well, it was a pleasure to chat with you today, and I and I hope you get some fun orders for some stuff and have a wonderful Christmas. Well, Eleanor is nothing but lovely. Yes, fascinating. Very kind of a hunting renaissance woman, so yeah, to speak. I like it. And now it's time for our term of the month. So I wanted to to chat. Are you have you done or do you know what Boxing Day is or hunts are or any of that? Are you familiar with it? I think I know what Boxing Day is, but I might have it wrong. It's something that fox hunting does. But the rest of the United States, not so much. True. <laughs> so, but you know, and, and I've always seen Boxing Day on calendars, and it absolutely is not a thing in the United States. But once I started fox hunting, I think it's been about 11 years ago. If you follow, like, social media or you read much about fox hunting, you, you're going to come across discussion, pictures, things about Boxing Day. And a couple of hunts that I've gone out with have been Boxing Day um, aficionados. It's definitely more popular in the UK than it is in the United States. But if you Google it and do some research, basically what Boxing Day is, is it was a, it's a tradition after the Christmas holidays for kind of the, the upper class, so to speak, you know, the, the landed gentry or whatever to give the staff both of the household and of the hunt. So, you know, boxes with food and gifts or whatever. And it's kind of morphed over time to being more of a gift thing, but it used to be like a box of food or whatnot. And so boxing day hunts have long been a huge thing in the UK. And, and there's now it's gotten to be where it's very much of a sporting day. There's horse races, there's rugby games, there are, um, there's one other sport I saw mentioned quite a bit, but there's there's fox hunting. And so, you know, fox hunts, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, usually the master was the person who owned the property where they were hunting and they had thousands and thousands of acres or whatnot. And they had a paid huntsman and they had paid whips to help with the hunt. And those people were given gifts on Boxing Day. Today, it has basically become kind of a high holiday not terribly dissimilar for what, you know, Christmas has be, kind of become a secular holiday. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's still very much a religious holiday, but it's also become very secular. And so Boxing Day has kind of morphed into that to where it's it's a day where people braid their horses' manes and they're very clean and they use their best tack and they ride their best horse and they bring out the best hounds. And it's it's a very celebratory day of fox hunting. Interesting. And that's, is Boxing Day... A specific day? Like, I always thought Boxing Day was always the day after Christmas. 
It is. It okay. always is, is, is December 26th. And kind of to go along with the, the horse sport of it, that it's also St. Stephen Day, which is a holiday, a religious holiday. And St. Stephen was a missionary in Sweden in the 800s who loved animals but was particular to horses. And he he was a martyr, and he was killed by pagans in Sweden um, and in various Christian, obviously, countries, different different traditions started in Germany. Evidently there was, um, it was a tradition that on December 26th horses would be ridden inside of the church on St. Stephen's day, which is also boxing day. (laughs) How to get your, how to get your horse crazy kids to go to church. Right. (laughs) We're going to be riding the pony in the church today. All right. We're on it. (laughs) Yeah. So, and it's also a day now too, where hunt members will bring, the huntsman and the whips, some special gift or something on, on boxing day. Pretty cool. So, so boxing day. Cause have you ever been to a Christmas day hunt with any of the hunts that you go out with? Never Christmas day. Texas is so not, it's, it's, our culture is not as, as um, inundated or whatnot with, with the fox hunting tradition. So mm-hmm. I think it would be difficult for most of the hunts here to get families to give up mm-hmm. the holiday right, right. in favor of hunting. Yeah. Well, I, I suspect it's like that in a lot of places because there's a lot of pressure on families to visit all the right places when you when right. you Christmas Day. There's a lot of pressure. But this is kind of cool because you can still get that holiday flair. And you want to get away from your family at that point anyway, let's be honest. To go out yes. on Boxing Day. Pretty cool. Well, and what I have done this with other hunts and we're doing it this year with this with our hunt is we're going to decorate the horses. Of course you are. Oh, my gosh. We must so have they're going to get the tinsel and they're going to get Santa hats and they're going to get and, and you see a lot of photos or I've always seen a lot of photos. I follow a fair amount of hunts in the UK on Instagram and and they go all out decorating their horses and people for boxing day. So I think it's just kind of become a fun celebration of fox hunting and, you know, it's always fun to have a good reason and an opportunity to kind of, you know, get dressed up, so to speak. Right. Versus opening day is a big deal, but it's a very formal big deal. Okay. We're listening right. And there's always more here, right. Versus yes. boxing day. It's a big deal, but it's a big deal. It's a party. <laughs> Well, it's almost more of a big deal about the hunting, whereas opening hunts often have a lot of people who will never come any other time during the year. Right. Yes. Every every available horse has been rented on opening day. Yes. And there's a lot of spectators and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance. And so I think Boxing Day is, is kind of like opening, but it's for the hunters. Yes. Pretty cool. Well, thank you. Well, yeah. I'm glad we did Boxing Day hunts. Yeah, there we and go. I'll put a couple of links in the show notes about Boxing Day. A vending nation did a fun article in 2019 um, cool. about Boxing Day fox hunting. Cool. Well, I think that about wraps it up. It's gonna. It's a little bit of a shorter show today because being this close to the holidays, it's hard to get people to sit down and do interviews. But uh, it was lovely to hear from Eleanor. We should have her back again sometime. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but thanks for listening. Uh, Tara who is the wonderful host of this here episode, I'm just along for the ride, can be found on Instagram, and her handle is at TNTibbets. That's T-N-T-I-B-B-E-T-T-S. And you can find links to today's show at horsesinthemorning.com. You can follow us on Facebook. Of course, it's Horses in the Morning. And it's, um, I think it's at 
horse radio network on Instagram. Not that we ever check that. So I guess it's still there. And you can have all of the horse radio network shows with you wherever you go with their free app. You can get it for your iPhone or your Android. Just go to the app store and search for the horse radio network. And that gets you a feed to everything. We are absolutely so grateful to our sponsor, the masters of Foxhounds association and good night. Good night. Ha <laughs> ha